We've melted. Nope, we're just taking a quick summer vacay. This is Nick Redding re-releasing an earlier episode of PreserveCast with Dr. Susan Langley. She has one of the coolest jobs around as an underwater archaeologist, so dive in, and we'll be back soon with a new episode of PreserveCast. Welcome to Preservation Maryland's PreserveCast. I'm your host, Nick Redding. Water, water everywhere, and history underneath. Underwater archaeology is an unusual but valuable field of study. Our guest this week, Dr. Susan Langley, is the Maryland State underwater archaeologist. Susan and I discuss some of the basics of underwater archaeology, including salvaging wrecked ships and the ins and outs of becoming an archaeological pirate. She also talked about Mallows Bay, home to the largest ghost fleet of the Western Hemisphere. Let's dive into PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Dr. Susan Langley has been the Maryland State Underwater Archaeologist for more than 22 years, directing the Maryland Maritime Archaeology Program. The program falls under the Office of Preservation Services at the State Historic Preservation Office in Maryland, the Maryland Historical Trust. It's there that she reviews applications for work in state and federal waters, as well as excavations of shipwrecks and submerged archaeological sites. Susan is also an adjunct professor at several colleges and universities and lectures globally on a variety of subjects, including maritime archaeology, piracy, textile technology, foodways, and even the archaeology of beekeeping. Thanks for joining us today, Susan. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So um, you have a pretty interesting background and a lot of varied interests. Um, I know when I was looking at the bio there, the interest of archaeology of beekeeping is, is, is pretty out there. It's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I love it. And I've been a beekeeper about 10 years and I've had the pleasure. Now we have bipartisan bees. We have a hive at Government House uh-huh. and it was um, installed under Governor O'Malley and um, Governor Hogan's been happy enough to keep it there. And even when it stung it's his wife's dog, um, <laughs> but they've, they've been very supportive. That's know? pretty neat. So tell us a little bit about how you got into underwater archaeology. How did this, this start? Was there a, a passion for underwater resources as a child, or where, where does it all begin? Um, convergence of the planets, I think. Uh, my family always liked history. I grew up on the Great Lakes, and mm-hmm. um, I remember a National Geographic from the early 60s, and the cover were these hands holding a, uh, what looked like a vase to a child pottery, and there was this green cloud swirling out of it, and, it was, and they had a, a flashlight on their wrist, and I was just en- enthralled. When I became an undergraduate, I asked about underwater archaeology and was told at the time, there's no such thing. And, um, or it'd be really nice, but it'd be impossible. This coming from non-underwater people. Right. And at the same time, in the summer, I had a bartending job. Two of the guys I was working with were a Canadian Coast Guard auxiliary, and they had a little dive program of their own. And so I just put it together. I learned to dive through them. I ended up at the end of my undergrad being offered a position with Parks Canada in Labrador working on the Red Bay Project, which has gone down in the annals. It was an early Basque uh, whaling station with accompanying shipwrecks. Wow. And so it was a phenomenal introduction. And yeah, a lot of a big skill set came with that. Right, I would imagine. So that was up in Canada and in the Great Lakes area. When did you end up in Maryland? What brought you here? 
I was doing my master's in Calgary in Alberta mm -hmm. and had um, finished that and started my doctorate and halfway through received one of those strange out of the blue phone calls that, do you want to teach in Thailand? And you're like, who is this really? You know, and I ended up going to Thailand for UNESCO for the Southeast Asian Ministers of Education organization for almost three years, teaching underwater archaeology. Um, then I came back, finished my doctorate. And as I was finishing it, a colleague sent me the advertisement from Maryland. And I said, oh, they're never going to hire a foreigner. It's too much trouble. But I thought, you know, you can't not apply for a job directly in your field. Too right. many people I knew had had to leave their disciplines. And I thought, you've got to apply. And I, I received an interview and I thought, well, that's pretty good. I didn't even think I'd get that far. Right. And ended up, I found out later, being second choice. And the initial person who was male and American turned it down. So I can't, they can't say they only hired me because I was female or that I was an evil foreigner taking a job. So second banana has its merits sometimes. <laughs> and so that's kind of been history ever since. You've been with the Maryland Historical Trust since then? I have. Wow. And so you oversee the underwater archaeology program. For someone who doesn't, um, maybe they have a vague understanding of just archaeology in general, Tell us a little bit about how does one do underwater archaeology? Is there digging like there would be in an archaeological site? I mean, how do you approach a project? Right. Um, that's interesting because most of the time we don't do as much diving. A lot of people, as soon as they learn to dive, want to volunteer with us. We right. do a lot less diving than we do electronic remote sensing. Okay. Um, because if a lot of our work is driven by compliance with Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act. Right. So if we, we can check an area, we're trying to survey the entire state over you know decades um, so that we can give quicker answers when somebody wants to do something, whether mm -hmm. it's an individual or an agency want to do something that could impact the waters. We, we love it if we can already tell them the answer that, yes, there's nothing there, go ahead. Right. So we do a lot of survey, which means we call it mowing the lawn. We have an array of electronic equipment, side scan sonar, uh, magnetometer, which is sort of like a large metal detector, but these look like torpedoes that we tow. So the state Maryland Historical Trust has its own boats, I guess? Yeah, we have three. Um, our biggest one's about 27 feet, 30 if you count the dive platform. Okay. Do they have names? Yeah, they're supposed to. It's bad luck not to. So we right. in, informally call them um, sea map, um, river map, and creek map sort of oh, thing. Okay. Uh, map being MMAP, Maryland Maritime Archaeology Program. Okay. And we are mapping. So we'll do the remote sensing and try and help people avoid wrecks if we can, rather than mm -hmm. undertake the cost of excavation conservation. Very rarely do we do excavation, but there are a number of tools for digging underwater effectively. They're mm. like vacuum cleaners that suck up sand. And right. you, you don't stick them in the ground. You fan the dirt into them so you don't suck up artifacts. Right. But the bay is quite shallow. Um, so there are only certain areas we could even use that. Most of the time, it would be a small induction dredge or something like that. Okay. So it, it, and it is And what are you normally finding? You said wrecks. I mean, is that normally the resource that is you're most concerned about? Like when you talked about how a lot of this is driven by compliance. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are, you know, some type of dredging project or a federal or a state project that's going to impact state waters. And so you're going in to look for some type of archaeological, some type of historic or perhaps even prehistoric resource. I mean, what what is it that we're normally as Marylanders trying to protect underwater? Well, for, for big dredging projects and things, they have to hire consultants because we, we mandate they have to do the survey. Right. We can't then go ahead and say, pay us to do it, or I'd get a lot bigger budget, you know, right. so we can't do that. But in our general survey work, or if there's an area where there's a nonprofit museum or something, we can help them out and it's a small thing. Mm -hmm. um, by and large, it, it is wrecks uh, because they're the most salient feature that can be vulnerable to looting, predation, um, souvenir hunting. Some of it's not malicious, but people don't realize you can't do that. We do look at... So um, is Italy 
illegal to to hunt a wreck in Maryland waters? You can go and dive on them all you want. You mm-hmm. can um, you can survey, draw, blah blah blah. Anything you, can't you want. Take. Well, you can't. You'd have to find out whether it's on the national register, whether it's eligible. Right. You might need a permit, okay. and um, there are there is unfortunately some legal collection permitted five items. You can't dig for them. You can't. You have to use jackhammers to remove them. Okay. Things like that. But we're also interested in areas where we have high erosion. We may have ta- historic town sites or landings eroding right. in wharf structure. Prehistoric sites are of course a concern, but. Electronically, they don't show up really. Right, because there's um, no metal associated no. with them. Oh, well, we might find them, and I have found them in rivers in Florida just diving because it's clearer. We don't mm-hmm. have that visibility. It's like archaeology by Braille. Right. But we, um, <laughs> you might find if there were a dugout canoe or using a magnetometer, if there were a hearth, that would cause the minerals in the soil to realign and it might show up. But we have such heavy um, buildup of sediment uh, just you know, in, normally that it's, um, if we found one, I'd be surprised. It'd be more likely it would turn up incidentally to other, other survey. Mm-hmm. Or if there's a, a very large site on land, it could easily carry out into the water. And we have found that. So when it comes to wrecks, I mean, there's obviously a lot of people just fascinated by shipwrecks. I mean, two questions about that. I mean, what is the magnitude of them? I and mean, how many do we have in Maryland state waters? And and then also along with that, what ages do they range from? I mean, how far back do shipwrecks go that we're aware of in Maryland waters? Okay. Uh, start with the last question sure. first. Once we're aware of, there are some that we know of probably from the late 18th century, maybe the last quarter of it. Very few. Okay. Anything earlier than that, not yet. There was a promising ballast pile down near St. Mary's City that a graduate student from, um, he's from St. Mary's College, but he was doing his degree in Britain, mm-hmm. um, was looking at, unfortunately, no artifacts to corroborate a potentially early age. So for sure, we're getting... That could have been 17th century, perhaps? Yeah, it could have been. could wow. have been. If, but it's if with no artifacts... Really in situ, a few things get caught up in the ballast stones, but you need more than that. Right. So nothing definitive there yet. So late late 18th century is probably our best bet at this point. Um, they do come right up to obviously modern times, but we have to look at, in fact, one of the most important ones that's recent was 1955. I was going to ask, how, how recent yeah. did these did these come about? In 55, I mean, we don't probably don't have a lot of major shipwrecks in the bay anymore, but... There, there's some, but there's there, some. Um, yeah, there's some important ones, and we know where they are, and we try. We don't send people there, although a few people have come to us with them sometimes. Sort of, uh, you know, collectors of old who are sort of you know getting past doing that anymore are now sort of fessing up where they know things are. <laughs> but um, for example, Eleven J Marvel is um, there's not a great deal of it left. It went down in August 1955. It was just the 60th anniversary of its loss last year, wow. with more than half of the lives on it lost. Yet the survivors made it to a duck blind. They were so close to shore. It was in Hurricane, in Hurricane Connie. Okay. The um, importance of it really was that the Bonner Act, the, the National Boating Safety Act, was in progress at the time. But that was really the straw that rammed it through, that, that boats had to meet certain standards to carry okay, passengers. Okay, so sort of the catalyst for a piece of legislation. It, very important piece. And is that is that boat, or is that site, I should say, is that on the National Register now? It's it's in there. Um, Peter, Peter, in our office, yeah, our National Register uh, person has it, and it's so it's moving through, through. Yeah, moving, it's moving through, the through. Because, you know, so those people didn't die in vain. They've saved thousands of lives since by that legislation going through right. uh, you know, as a result of that. It so. seems like a good example there of the role that archaeology and then the National Register can play in not only 
recognizing important sites, but sort of, in this case, like you say, memorializing so that these people didn't die in vain. There's a recognition of the role that they played in a broader story and legislation and things like that. There, there were several large, um, we, we had a, uh, an event in North Beach to commemorate the 60th. There were five speakers and some music and musicians, and they had some artifacts and things uh, that people had collected because when it broke up, folks all along Herring Bay picked things up. And we had the meeting to say, those of you whose parents picked these up back in the day, please, when you, know, when you don't want them anymore, don't just throw them out. If you're not sure, let one of the local museums know. We were expecting a handful of people. We had over 400 people showed up for it. Wow. And a lot of them were either, some of them actually were old enough to remember this. Some were children and remembered it. So, it was, And we had the son of the captain came from, up from Florida. And mm-hmm. it was a, a very um, emotive time and, and a good commemoration. So now, have you done terrestrial archaeology as well? Have you done that in your career, just sort of on the dry land? Yeah, so you, have, you have to start. You walk before you run. Right. Um, most universities won't even offer maritime until you've, um, it's offered as a graduate program. Okay. So the fact that St. Mary's College of Maryland um, has me teach a, an intro every two years, I will say the students who came out of that course who wanted to go into maritime all got into the institution of their choice, most of them with money, because wow. they had a leg up on everyone else sure. just going into it. Sure. I was going to ask, because it seems like the, the public's um, view and interest is really peaked when it comes to maritime time even perhaps even versus what's going on on the, on the dry land. It just sort of seems like there's sort of this cachet associated with maritime underwater archaeology. It's very, very exciting. I think that um, goes back to pirates and treasure and all yeah. those things that you grow up with. So you know? you're sort of like an archaeologist um, pirate in a, in a sense. When I teach the pirates, never. I'm, I'm, the, I'm, the, uh, I'm the sheriff. I've got the, I've got the white hat. Okay. Um, but we, it, it is, uh, people are interested in it. And I think the media, you know, the last decade with such a resurgence of, you know, National Geographic Channel, Discovery Channel, Learn Right. channel. Uh, we don't always concur with the, how they present it. And, you right. know, and there there's always has to be that element of drama to sell it. Right. When most of us are sitting out in the boat on it, you know, when we're filthy and the engine's down and you're grubby and we look at each other and go, isn't this a glamorous job? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, we were talking before the interview about it's a great project and you were saying it's really sort of um, exceptional and, and unique in, in the way that you've been able to approach it. And it's one along the lines of getting a lot of media attention has received almost international attention uh, is Mallows Bay in Maryland state waters. And for those people who are listening that aren't from Maryland, why don't you tell us a little bit about where Mallows Bay is and what the resource there is? Sure. And I have to say, you know, I've, I've been fascinated with it since I came to Maryland. The person who's written the most about it, if anyone is really interested, is Donald Shomat, who's a noted Maryland maritime um, historian. And he's written a book called Ghost Fleet of Mallows Bay and Other Tales of the Lost Chesapeake. He wrote it in 96, I believe. And he's talking now about updating it because research doesn't end. Right. But if you're 30 miles south of Washington, D.C., in Charles County, Maryland, is a small half-mile-wide embayment with nearly 100 World War I-era ships in it. And, um, you know, I've been talking for years about trying to make it a preserve or do something with it, trying to work out something with DNR, natural resources, mm-hmm. because uh, that department, you know, maintains the bottom land, and these vessels have become an integral part of the environment. But, Mar- you know, Maryland Historical Trust is tasked with the management of the vessels, so it had to be cooperative. And it, this has sort of been going on and on. Recently... You know, NOAA reinstituted, well, reinvented, really. It's not the same program, but their National Marine Sanctuary program. Um, we were in the forefront 20 years ago, and then they sort of stopped nominating them for a while, nearly 20 years. And we're angling really hard with Wisconsin. We're racing to be 15th, the 15th sanctuary. Okay. Um, but the vessels were... Um, 
built uh, in largely in 1918, 1919. It was determined in 1917 that they needed um, to build, uh, and this is a civilian endeavor, it's not military, they needed to build vessels to carry supplies overseas, just support transports, mm -hmm. even to the allies, to the, to the citizens who were being impacted, not necessarily war materials or anything like that. And they determined to build a thousand of them in about 18 months. Uh, which is phenomenal. Um, right. It would have been about 2 million tons of blue water shipping. And if you think between 1899 and 1915, I'm stealing Don's data here, American blue water shipping only totaled completely about 500,000 tons. So they were going to like quadruple it in 18 months. Wow. So this was a phenomenal proposal. They didn't, they ended up contracting for 750, 30, something like that, uh, vessels at 60 different shipyards from, you know, the Northeast, the Northwest, California, uh, Southeast, a little bit on the Gulf. The Great Lakes was part of a different project. It was building metal hulls, but for the same U.S. shipping board, emergency fleet, it was called. Mm -hmm. So these are all wooden hull ships. The ones down here are, and they're sort of the equivalent of, say, Liberty ships, World War II Liberty ships, but these were World War I wooden steamships. Uh, they were built to nine different designs. They ended up only completing, I think at the end of the day, there were under completion, there were fewer than 300. And of those, um, you know, because no one expected the war end, to end in 1918 when it right. did, so they still had several on the racks. None of them made it to Europe that year. Some of them got out on the water, and they found out they had issues with um, sure. the wood was green and things like that. So they had, they had construction and uh, So did issues. any of them actually, any of these ships in Mellis Bay ever convey, you know, ship uh, transport between the two? No. They, um, they finished, uh, some of them did make it to Europe, but it was after the war ended. And, and some of them made it over more than once, but a handful. And a handful of them were sold into private service when they, uh, at the end of the war, they, uh, when they had these, these vessels, they decided to try and sell them off. And it took three bids to get anyone to take them, really. And the third one, they bought the entire fleet, which was probably 230 vessels at that point. There's still 20 hulls in Texas in a river. There's some in the James River. There's some up in Curtis Bay. Those were the ones that were sold into private service. And when they were done hauling, wood and fertilizer, them. they just sank them in Curtis Bay. They, they, the vessels are between, you know, they're under 300 feet, say 240 to 270 feet long. So they're not small. They cost three quarters of a million to a million dollars to build each. They sold the entire, what was left of the entire fleet for the cost of one vessel to a salvage company out of Alexandria. And it brought them up, tied them up off Widewater, Virginia. And the problem was they kept breaking loose, catching fire. And when they broke loose and became a hazard to navigation, it was the Marines at Quantico who went chasing after them. And you can imagine that got old pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So they um, said to the company, you've got to corral these, you've got to do something. So they shoved them into Mallow's Bay and built pilings along the front and were breaking, taking them a few at a time to Alexandria to break them down at that point. Then the company was not doing that well. It, it would go under and then sort of rise again like a phoenix. It was a little bit shady. By the time of the Depression, that company went under completely. And it tried to come back and claim the vessels again, but a court said no. Hmm. Uh, some of their former employees and many of the local residents actually started salvaging the vessels, sort of mom-and-pop wildcat salvage. It's the heart of the Depression. You're in a rural and economically poor area. The, the salvage of these vessels provided something like 15% of the per capita income for Charles County during the Depression. Wow. So today, they're all there still in, in sort of behind these pilings in Mallows Bay. Well, and not quite. Not quite. There's a, there's a gaggle of them still near Widewater. They, we thought nine. We now think 12. The Institute for Maritime History nonprofit has been out surveying, and they said they think there's up as many as 12. Uh, and there are two or three more escapees downriver. 
And oh, um, really? yes, and so they, they go a bit farther than that, but the majority, the majority are in Malos, yes. And what role has the the state's underwater archaeology program played in surveying and and helping move this towards maritime sanctuary status? It's a partnership deal. When when Noah reinvented reinvented the sanctuary program, it, they said, you know, rather than show up. And I'm not dissing anybody, but Park Service or Land Bureau of Land Management kind of show up and say, here's your park. And people who haven't been consulted or are upset about this, and they spend five years mollifying people or assuaging them of their fears. Um, and Noah did that in the past. And they said, this is new. It has to come from the community. They have to want it. We have over 135 community partners who all said they want it. Uh, we've had n no negative feedback by and large. We've had perfectly valid concerns and questions asked. Um, so it was a partnership between the community, um, Maryland Historical Trust, uh, Department of Natural Resources, because we're not going to raise any of these vessels or put preservative right. on them. So as we go forward, they've integrated themselves to the environment. So it's going to be a lot more natural focus you know, right. on, on them. But we do want to continue to survey these vessels. A lot of them haven't been completely surveyed yet. Some have. There are other vessels in and around the area um, that are not World War I related, but in Mallows and near there um, that have Civil War affiliation, potentially Revolutionary War affiliation, just workboats. There was a fishery and caviar cannery mm -hmm. right near Mallows Bay. So there's a lot of other, and there's wharves. There are a lot of resources beyond the ships. So if someone um, would like to learn more about it, obviously they can read the book that you offered, and mm -hmm. we'll, we'll provide a link to that with this um, show download. But is there a way to actually get out on the water and see it? safely and, and, you know, not, not damage any of the resources, but is there a way that they can get out and actually see this area? There is, it's, um, you can, you're welcome. There's a park nearby. Um, it's run by the county and mm -hmm. county of course is a partner very much in this. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you can put it in a kayak, you can put it in a kayak, you can put it in a small bass boat. In fact, the bass fishing is phenomenal. Okay. Catfish too. Please eat the invasive snakeheads, catfish, come and eat them. Um, there's a lot, there's great bird watching. Uh, they've uh -huh. put in a telescope up in the park that you can look out on the vessels you can see. Okay. Most of them are around the corner of a promontory. So you would have to go a uh, kayak out so to them. So it's better to kind of get out on the water, kayak, but it is an right. interesting place to go and Marylanders can go there. Probably Absolutely. not, probably we're recording this right now in December, probably not this time of the year, best time to go out and see it, a little chilly out in the water, but, but And not nice... safe unless you're wearing a wetsuit, you know, right. so we worry about cold water. You right. Know? But, but the spring might be a nice time to get out and see it. Every season offers something if it's the <laughs> birds coming back or the flowers blooming. There's a lot right. of blooming plants in there. Right. Um, there's a burning basin in the back, which was put in during the Second World War by Bethlehem Steel that kind of took it over and thought they'd do the salvage on site rather than haul. About 12 vessels, they said it's not worth it's it. Too, but too it's an, that's a nice calm area if you're a beginner kayaker to go in there and just look around as well. Okay. And there's some vessels in there. There's sort of the litter mentality. You know, if somebody leaves a piece of litter, it's okay for you to drop one. Well, these vessels were here. So a number of other vessels have been sort of sneaked in through time and right. kind of left there as well. Most recently, as recent as 1972 or three. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it's the Akamak. It's a big metal hull. You'll see it like the Sentinel at the mouth of the uh, bay. And it's kind of, how does someone sneak a 300 foot long metal hull in there? Nobody knows. It just appeared. They always do it at <laughs> night, I guess. So we, we normally, as we wrap to conclusion here, we normally ask folks what their favorite historical building in Maryland is. But having an archaeologist with us, I suppose the question probably should be if you had a favorite site that you've been a part of either surveying or doing a dive on, if you had to pick one in Maryland, what would it be? Wow. It is a good question. I, um, I, I've worked on a lot of great sites, but it actually is Mallow's Bay. 
I've wanted to see something happen down there since the moment I laid eyes on it. And so this is really fortuitous that we can, as the sanctuary moves forward, you know, trade on Noah's expertise and their, the fact that they can shine a global spotlight on this. Right. And that's phenomenal. We do have to uh, have a good management plan in place, though, because you know we have to guard against loving it to death. Right, and which we've we see at a lot of national parks, and I mean sometimes people love things too too hard. Or, or well, even <laughs> we've seen an increased visitation with just the nomination process. Right, so there's been a lot know, of publicity about it. Exactly. Yeah, so double edged sword. And we do want people to see it and visit it, but we're going to have to you know be able to manage it so that people realize that we're trying to add no new regulations. So it is going. You can still fish. You just need a fishing license. You don't need two. You just need one from the state. Right. You can still you know, bird watch, you can still, um, you can visit the wrecks, but you cannot vandalize, climb on, steal things. Yeah, Yeah. no. You're still not allowed to squash rare, threatened, and endangered species or harm or harass them. I mean, all the rules that are in place now. The only new one we'd look at maybe is drones because that's a new technology that didn't exist. Right. And with a lot of our DOD partners, Quantico nearby, they don't necessarily want them in the area. So we're probably going to follow whatever uh, the federal or state guidelines are for that. But we're trying very hard not to institute any new rules. We want people to still go and and fish and and bird watch and kayak and... But I think it gives it gives the listeners a sense from your perspective, having been with the Maryland Historical Trust for quite some time, that this project obviously is, is pretty special. If you single that out as uh, something that you see as perhaps the one of the most interesting things or your favorite thing that you've worked on in a, in a very long and pretty rewarding career. So it gives people a sense. If people don't know about Malice Bay or haven't seen it, they should Google definitely it. <laughs> Google it and, and read more up on it. There's a lot out there on it, and it is pretty fascinating, as we were saying. Uh, you know, the spring or summer could be a, a wonderful time to go out and, and, and take a kayak trip around Mellows Bay. It's the largest ghost fleet in the Western Hemisphere. And the ones in the Eastern Hemisphere are modern shipbreaking ones in the Indian Ocean. So right. historically, you, you won't see anything else like this anywhere. Well, that's a wonderful way to uh, conclude this. Susan, thank you for joining us today. And thank you on behalf of all Marylanders for uh, your long career in protecting the places and sites that matter to our state. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Ben and Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving.